ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, and we'll be there in just a little bit. Men's retreat was great, and I hit something of a, of a milestone that maybe a couple of you can relate to. I was sitting there about 10 o'clock last night. We'd played cards, we'd played games, and you know, you're looking around to see if there's anyone else to talk to, and some folks came up and talked to me from the college group, and they heard, oh, you grew up in Russia, and then tell us about that. And, and I said, well, you know, the wall fell in 1989, and in Christmas Day of 91, Boris Yeltsin jumps up on the tank, and they just kind of looked at me. And I asked them, guys, when were you born? And they said 93 was the oldest of them, and 97 was the other two. So maybe you can relate to that. That's kind of a new experience for me, but I'm, I'm getting older as fast as I can. I'll put it that way. As you have lived and you have seen culture come and go and, and the great institutions of culture, part of, of our culture and our story is, is free enterprise and commercial exchange and, and companies that come and, and become iconic. And especially through things like advertising, every one of us has come to recognize certain companies and certain trademarks, and, and they just become part of the fabric of our lives. And even as we use an expression like that, I'm from cotton country. That is the tagline of the American cotton industry, the fabric of our lives. IBM and Hewlett-Packard, who pioneered the computer industry, they don't sell computers anymore. Hayes, who invented the modem, doesn't make modems anymore. You cannot go and buy Kodak film. Woolworths does not exist anymore. Sears, yeah, Sears is still there, but do you remember what happened a few years ago? Perhaps a fate worse than death, Sears was bought by Kmart. This is Arkansas. You're not supposed to like Kmart, right? And it's a shadow of its former self. Those things that seemed like they would be here forever, mm, they're not. They were, they failed. For every, every indication at one time in their life as a, as a company, as part of an industry, they seemed like they would grow and love, that they would always be with us. And those were companies that that were definitely part of the fabric of this nation, but they're not here anymore. They failed. Sometimes we need to look around in our spiritual circles and we need to take inventory and recognize that there have been failures among us. That we have made decisions, maybe like the Israelites, to, to peer over the edge of the promised land and, and we have a choice. We, we know what God has asked of us. We know that He says, if you'll just go into the promised land, if you will take what I have already given you, all you have to do is take hold of it. It's yours. But sometimes we make decisions that follow along the same pattern that the Israelites did. They, they looked over into the promised land, and what did they do? We can't do that. They're too big, we're too small. They're too strong, we're too weak. They're too rich, we're too poor. They're, they're too whatever, and the obstacles are just too big. And for a lack of faith, there is no obedience. And they fail. In fact, an entire generation fails. And we hate to talk about failure because it's just 
so ugly. And we want to talk about happy things. We want to talk about success. But I want to, this evening, talk about a, a guaranteed mindset for failure so that we can identify it and say, let that never define us. So that you and I, in our walk with God, in our faith with Him, can say we will not be those kind of people, at least with this mindset that we'll talk about tonight, we will not be people who fall into that kind of trap. A shot that is never taken will never hit its target, right? And a seed that is never planted will never grow into a plant. Uh, A risk never ventured will never turn into a gain. And a world never evangelized will not turn to Jesus How we define success is something we also need to think about. When we have some kind of initiative as God's people, we we say, let's have a door-knocking campaign. That's kind of an old-school thing to do. Or let's invite in a special speaker. Or let's do a special series of classes. Or let's, I don't know, let's buy the house next door so that a ministry can expand. There are all sorts of things that that are are given as opportunities for us to do. And and I think it's great. Sarah was, I was at the men's retreat, so Sarah was telling me just a few snippets from the lesson this morning. And and what I loved, the quote that she told me is, this is this is not growth, or this is not a decision that comes from having to to shrink back, but it's a decision of, of growth and seizing opportunity. That excites me. That's the kind of thing that God's people are invited to do. But whatever, whatever opportunity is in front of us, whatever good promise of God is before us, we have options as we evaluate these things. How we look at success, how we define success, comes down to what our measuring sticks will be. Maybe we want to know at an event. How many people were baptized out of such and such effort? Uh, How many people went away with a good impression, thinking good things about our congregation or us as people? Uh, We we start a a new series in Bible class or a new new way to engage parents, and we want to know how many parents actually took time to to do the the homework with their kids and and worked with them beyond that. Uh, You you do something where you go into the community and you ask, maybe you ask them, what can we pray for you about? We want to know what kind of engagement did we have with the community. We need to be willing to ask questions about how we evaluate our programs, how we evaluate our, our approaches. I, uh, you know, I mentioned door knocking. Is there anybody in here who just loves to go door knocking? I didn't think so. Okay, I don't mind it, but I, it's nobody, if it's your favorite thing, something's wrong upstairs, okay? And the reason it's so easy to write something like that off is you knock on somebody's door and if you've got cookies in your hand they may let you get the first word out but once they see your name tag that says hi i'm from whatever church and would you would you have a minute to visit it's no and we say nothing good came out of that that was a failure i don't know if it was a failure maybe our measuring stick needs to be uh needs to be recalibrated They may not have heard the gospel, but what did we learn through the process? Whenever we do something in faith, this is is where I'm coming to. We we, We have decided as a culture and as churches, something like door knocking can never be effective and has no use. But I want you to think about it from this way. If we knock on a door and get a door slammed in our face, what have we learned? That we can survive doors being slammed in our faces. 
and that we can have the faith and strength to go on to the next door. And you know what? We, we as a people, we don't handle rejection well. What might be a good lesson for us to learn as Christians? That the world may reject us time and time again, but we grow stronger as we say, you know, they rejected Jesus and I am following in his footsteps. They reject me. Failure, failure would be refusing to go. Failure is giving up before we try. We need to learn lessons from any initiative that we engage ourselves in. Even if nobody was baptized, even if nobody went away and, and, and decided your church is doing such good things, I'm going to give you free airtime or I'm going to tell my friends all about how good you are, there are still things to learn even if you and I think we have failed. I think that door-knocking illustration really puts the point on that. You and I need to learn what it is to fail and that we can get back up. Fail, in quotes. Matthew chapter 25. We have, beginning in verse 14, the parable of the talents. This is a parable that, that talks about successes and failures. But there's one individual in the story who from the very beginning sets himself up for failure. Let's read together. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. This is beginning in verse 14. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. And when he had received the five talents, the one who had received the five talents went away at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he who had the two made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And you, you and I have read this story how many times we know what's coming. But I, I hope that we're ready to hear the actual tool that Jesus uses, the measuring stick he uses to evaluate these three individuals. He settles accounts with them. Verse 20, He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, I, you delivered to me five. Here I have five more. The master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you've delivered me two. Here I have made two more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And now we have our last little fella. He who had received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seeds. And so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. What's the atmosphere like as this man lifts up the one talent to his master? What's the expression on the master's face? What's running through the heart of, of this servant as he lifts this one piece of silver back to his master? The master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gathered where, where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers. And so at the coming, I would have received what is my own with interest." So take the one talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. 
For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's talk about the first two we understand. We see, we see them as, as part of the story, but not necessarily the main focus of the story. But, but to sum up their, their component, God gives them, uh, call it opportunity, call it responsibility, whatever. God gives them, and they are faithful. How is faithfulness measured? It's interesting. Sometimes you go to a funeral and they talk about, well, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, they were very faithful. They were here every time the doors were open. Folks, if that is our measure of faithfulness, we've got a pretty lousy measuring stool. Faithfulness is not about just showing up. That would be kind of like, God, here I am. You, you put me here and I'm going to give back to you just what you gave me. Faithfulness means an increase. Whatever God started you off with, there is an increase to those things. That is being faithful. Let's, let's break this word faithful apart. It means full of what? Faith. Someone who is full of faith does what? What does a person who is full of faith do as he peers over the edge of the promised land? He's not those ten spies who say they're too big, they're too rich, they're too strong. The faithful man, the man full of faith says we can do it because our God has said it can be done. There is no obstacle that's too big. There's no enemy who's too strong. There is no no resource that we don't have because God is bigger and stronger and richer. And if we hold on to His coattails... This is what I love about the book of, of Revelation and the whole Bible for that matter. But you know, Revelation, there's all these different ways to interpret it and all these ways to dice it and slice it. But one thing everybody just has to agree on is God wins. And those people who, who stand very close in His shadow, those people who grab onto His coattails and ride with Him, they win too. That's faithfulness. That is being full of faith. The first two are commended for faith. Not for just showing up, but for doing with what God has given them. And this last fellow, it's not just that he lacked faith, but the lack of faith is described. We actually get to see into his motives. We get to see what he was thinking, and it's very different from the other two. The other two saw opportunity, and they knew that God intended for them to take opportunity, so they went, and they did, and God was pleased. God gave the increase, as Paul might write in in 1 Corinthians. But here we have our third man. Verse 24, he comes forward and says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. What is different about this fellow, at least as far as the descriptions go, what's different about this guy from the other two? He had a different view of who God was. How you see God and how you and I understand God has a lot to do with how we will respond to Him. We, we talked, I think it was last week, about having a Jesus-centered... No, last week was resurrection. Two weeks ago, a Jesus-centered faith. 
where we weren't so distracted by all of the other things, even spiritual things that we could be talking about, we would, we would be dedicated to the person of Jesus, to knowing the ministry of Jesus, to having the heart of Jesus. That is at the core. Why do we have to know Jesus? Why do we have to be so, so one with Him that we are lost with Him? So that we won't have a misconception of who God is and having that misconception lose our ability to act in faith. If our vision of God is something like this fellow here, God, I, you, 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 see the, you hear the cowering in his voice. God, you're, you're really hard. You are harsh. And, and I know if, if I made a mistake, what would you do? No mistakes are tolerated at least in this man's image of God. And so because he is so afraid of failure, he's so afraid that he might lose some part of the master's money, he does nothing. He is paralyzed by his fear. He is one who would stand right at the edge of the promised land and stay shaking in his boots forever, saying, I, I just can't bring myself to move forward. Because he has no picture no image, no understanding of a God who is bigger, who is stronger. God says, I go before you. That's, that's the message of Joshua over and over and over. He says that the people needed to be reassured that God was bigger than the obstacles that were in front of them. This man here needs to hear the same lesson. His image of God that God is so harsh and that God is just looking for an opportunity to squash him. Because he is so fearful and so paralyzed, what is the end result? Even what he had, even the one talent that he was given was taken away because he lacked what? He lacked faith. Folks, for you and I to take what God has given us and bury it in the ground to keep it safe for God, God is not interested in that. That is not faithfulness. That is cowardice. You and I must be bold as we follow God. You and I must go where He, where he points. You and I must say what he, the, the words that He puts in, into our lips. You and I must be people of action. It's hard when you're in leadership to ask people to step out and do something because inevitably, whatever you do, whenever you take a group of kids to camp, whenever you take people on a retreat, wherever you decide to move forward in a ministry project, somebody's going to get hurt. Something's going to happen. There's going to be something unscripted and unplanned. And they're not always comfortable things. And so we say, maybe we just shouldn't do it. Maybe we ought to fall back. Maybe we ought to reevaluate. Maybe we ought to go back and, and count all of our own resources. And that would be something like Israel going back before any of the battles that they engaged in and saying, now how many troops do we have? And how many troops do this other guy have? Do we have enough to overcome him? When David tried that, what happened to him? You remember the story of David deciding to take the census of the people and, and find out just how many troops he had at his disposal? When David thought he ought to rely on his own ingenuity, his own ability as a general, and his own armies and the strength thereof, God says, you don't have to worry about the enemies destroying you. I will be the one 
who is your undoing. Just like this fellow here, for lack of faith. Because he has this image of God that God is waiting for him to make a mistake, waiting for him to trip, waiting to destroy him. And that's not who God was. You and I know that's not who God is. But this fellow had that image. And that was the only way that, that in that construct, the only way he knew how to respond to God is I'd just better protect what God has given me instead of try to expand it. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talents in the ground. Here, have what is yours. The worst thing we can say to God is I was so afraid of you that I didn't do anything for you. Man, that would be tragic, wouldn't it? But that's what this fellow did. He had the same duration of, of opportunity, whatever the, the time period that this, this master is gone, he had the same opportunities that the other guys did. God did not ask him to do something he wasn't capable of doing. He said he handed them these talents in proportion to their ability. But the man did not live up to his ability because he was so scared of God. What's your picture of God? Are you scared of him? Sometimes because we wonder if we take this action or if we go this direction what might happen? Whom might we upset? We have all these questions and doubt begins to fill our minds. God pushes us forward. God nudges us forward. God leads us forward with a boldness and with an assurance. And that's what it is to follow Him. Without questions, without doubts, and definitely without this attitude of, I was afraid, so I hid what you gave me. I want to look in our last few minutes together, at a few attitudes that I think will change our mind about who God is. Some, some comparisons that God makes between a couple of different virtues or a couple of different ideas, and God says, you know, between these two, if you had to pick, I want you to pick this one. Does it sound bad to say we want to protect the, the people of God or the things of God? No. But God says, would I rather you be so scared of protecting things that you can't move forward in faith? Or would I rather you be faithful people moving forward? I would rather you try than out of fear do nothing. Because that's the way you're going to fail. So let's read a couple of these things together. Lots of important things discussed, but he will say there are some that are more important. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 23. Just back a couple of pages Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. And he uses this, this ridiculous image. He says you're, you're trying to keep something out of your, out of, out of your soup pot or out of, out of whatever dish you're cooking. And so you're using a strainer and, and using a strainer and pouring everything through. You missed putting a camel all the way through for trying to keep out a little gnat flying around. What have you missed? You've missed something that everybody else could see. You've missed the big picture. And we know the kind of people that Jesus was dealing with. These are the kind of people that, 
that Luke would describe. They trust in themselves for their own righteousness. But they were so fastidious about as they harvested even the spices that came out of their, their little gardens and they would count off just the right amount of leaves. You know, one for me, one for God. One. And that was, he said, that's fine. You know, that's fine that you are so concerned that God gets what is His. But you were very concerned with that. And what you were not concerned with was justice. And justice means, you know, we, we, we pray and, and we ought to pray. Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That idea of, of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, nobody talks back to God. In heaven, the right thing always happens. That's the idea of justice, that things that are wrong here, things that we see that are out of place and just just don't match with God's vision for the way things ought to be. When justice prevails, that's godliness, righting wrongs. And he said, you know, you've you've let a lot of, oh, we'll just take some of the the highlights of the Old Testament. You've let a lot of uh, widow ladies be taken advantage of and you haven't batted an eye. You've... um, You've let a lot of orphans go hungry. You've let, uh, you've let a lot of people be swindled. And you've let a lot of people be hurt and abused. As you count the leaves off your mint. And you are so proud for the mint that you are donating to God. But all around you is injustice. And you don't, you don't get worked up over that at all. To God, which is more important? Where is faith? for God is faithfulness in counting out mint leaves or is it in pursuing justice pursuing justice and then there are these these other things too justice and mercy you you hear all of the discussions that Jesus brings up about mercy and and mercy has been shown to you therefore show an equal amount of mercy to someone else and and that parable of the unmerciful servant it doesn't get any more poignant than that. Of Here's the man who's been forgiven an, un, an untold sum. And yet he finds somebody owes him a few pennies. And there is no mercy in his heart to pass on. There's no ability to forgive. There's no patience. There's no grace. There's no mercy. You have forgotten faithfulness. Faithfulness was not just showing up for temple ritual. They were good at that. Faithfulness was acting by faith, being people who were full of faith, who moved forward, who took the risk, who took the chance, who took what God had given them and traded with it, using that picture and those illustrations from Matthew 25. These were people who did not hold back. These are the kinds of people you read back in, read, read in Hebrews chapter 11, the ones that, that moved and lived and acted by faith. And they were commended for it. They were full of faith. And God worked through them. So, so what does faithfulness look like to God? He said there's nothing wrong with making sure God gets His due. But faithfulness is about acting by faith, acting in mercy, and acting in justice. James chapter 2 and verse 13. Now our picture of God is beginning to change. It's not just about making sure God gets a ceremonial part that belongs to him but God is after their attitudes in their heart and changing their way of thinking <coughs> James chapter 2 and verse 13 we have another one of these comparison statements mercy triumphs over just judgment that's 
That's hard. We are a people who, who like to think of ourselves as law-abiding people, and when you're guilty, you're guilty, and if you can't, if you can't do the time, you shouldn't have done the crime. That just kind of rolls off of our tongue. It even rhymes in our language. Great. Jesus would point us back to these characteristics of God. Which does he prefer? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth leaves you with a nation of what? One-eyed, toothless people. God's way is to find forgiveness. God is so interested in forgiving that you might say he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, should not perish, that he should not meet justice, well, judgment, but have everlasting life. How interested in God is God in trying to find a means to forgive, trying to find a means to mercy? We should be that same kind of people, that that's what we're more interested in finding is a way to show mercy to others. Hosea, back in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 6 in verse 6. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Again, two, two good things. God commands sacrifice in the Old Testament, but sacrifice is, is representative, isn't it? Sacrifice doesn't mean anything all by itself. All by itself, sacrifice is just you know, a, a barbecue meal. But I desire steadfast love. This steadfast, that's, it's a hard word to translate into English. It's, it's faithful love. It's, it's loving kindness. It's, it's steadfast. Chesed is this word in Hebrew. It's the kind of love that God has for his people. And he says, I wish that you had it. It's, it's, it's almost an echo of the same thoughts that Jesus said to the Pharisees when he said, I'm, I'm watching you count out all of your your donations and making sure you have all these leaves counted off that's great but how is your heart and the old testament sometimes we we buy into this idea that the new testament god is all about love and the old testament god was not concerned with matters of the heart and that's baloney isn't it because here he says i desire steadfast love from you what's your picture of god is he a god who is standing over and and then looking over your shoulder and saying, ah, you owe me three more pennies in the collection plate next Sunday. You owe me this many more hours of work. You know, you didn't study that lesson hard enough before you taught it. You owe me some, you owe me some push-ups. You know, that's the drill instructor version of God. That's the image that the third servant had, isn't it? That if he messes up, he will be punished. If he takes a risk and it doesn't go the way he intended, he will be punished. The only thing God said was not tolerable was faithlessness. And you will fail because you have no faith. 1 Samuel chapter 15, <coughs> verse 22. We've, we've read this. Uh, what, what does God really want? What is God after? Has the Lord as great a desire in burnt offerings and in sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What would God prefer, obedience or sacrifice? 
Well, you know, if you would concentrate more on obedience, what would there be fewer occasions of? If you were more interested in, in, in sanctification, in following the will of God, you'd have a whole lot fewer sin sacrifices to offer, wouldn't you? God said, sure, the sacrifice, sacrifices are, are, are legislated and they're part of the law, but I would rather have your obedience than your sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. So what's your image of God? Is He the killjoy of heaven? Is He the drill instructor? Is He, is he the, the enforcer and the heavy? Is He the one who is looking for any and every opportunity to give you a citation, to give you a ticket, and to bring you down? Or does He give us the opportunities and the resources and the connections that we have so that we can, with faith, move forward? So that we can have more to give Him than what He gave us. So that we can be faithful with the things that we have from Him. Faithful, faithful, faithful. I just find it real tragic to read what happened to this guy back in Matthew chapter 25. He had every opportunity. The only difference was his concept of God. If you and I really understand God to be behind us, as wind in our sails moving us forward, if you and I really understand God as going before us, driving out the enemies and overcoming things ahead of time, if you and I really understand God as being on either side of us, protecting us from anything that would come and, and bother us and, and distract us from fulfilling whatever commission He's put in front of us, if we would have the right picture of God, we'd be a whole lot more like the first two gentlemen in the story. The one who, ones who were faithful with what they were given versus the last guy whose picture of God led him to be unfaithful. And like Israel of old, if you have no faith, you can't obey. Faithlessness leads to a lack of obedience. And that's tragic. Friends, I want to ask you tonight, what is your picture of God? How do you see Him? And does your mental image, the image that is in your heart, does it strengthen you to do things for God, to live and act in faith? Or does it make you cower and say, I better hide this and protect him, protect this for him? Because if we're in that protectionist mode, if we're in the circle of the wagons mode, we're guaranteed to fail. But if we see God high and lifted up and exalted and all-powerful, then we will succeed because he is a victorious God. If there's anything we can do for you tonight to pray for your encouragement and for you to be strengthened in your faith, let us know what that is as we stand and as we sing.